1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 51 for our text. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. Father, this is marvelous and exciting, truly a breathtaking word. And I pray, Father, that while it's emotionally stirring, that this morning it would also be intellectually uh, strengthening. That we would study, Lord, to show ourselves approved. That we would understand not just what one verse says, but what your word declares about this great mystery. And why it's here and what it means, Lord. And I do believe, Father, as your word proclaims, the day is coming when we will be caught up. When we will be with you, and so we shall ever be with the Lord. Give us ears to hear your word. Clarity, sharpness of understanding, Lord. And stir in our hearts, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. According to the Babylon Bee, which is a publication out of Bothell, Washington, local 22-year-old Chloe Kowalski's world was torn apart Friday morning as the millennial barista was diagnosed with a rare disease that prevents her from having the ability to even... I just can't, even. Kowalski reportedly sobbed on her boyfriend's shoulder after the appointment with her regular doctor, which she had scheduled after slowly losing her even functionality over the course of several months. I can't even right now. I can't even, ever. She was overheard saying through tears before breaking down. We've never quite seen a case like this before, Dr. Elizabeth Eden told reporters gathered outside the clinic where Kowalski's devastating diagnosis was handed down. She states that many millennials will experience short bouts of not being able to even for several seconds, usually triggered by a cute video of a cat or other small animal on YouTube, or perhaps something online that's so relatable. But Kowalski, the doctor said, she may never even again. At least not without assistance, she said, shaking her head grimly, according to reporters, and reached for comment, Kowalski noted that she still can't even. I seriously just can't even, you guys, she said. Can any of you ever just not even? You know what I'm saying? Do you understand millennials speak here? I thought you all would get it. First service, they just sat there going, can't even what? (laughs) I just can't even. Some Christians have had a similar reaction to this doctrine of the rapture. They hear the word and they just can't even. They can't go there. They can't relate. They don't get it. Non-Christians, you know, will hear about it and say, oh yeah, that's the stuff of fictional novels, maybe movies, but come on. I can't even. I understand the skepticism, truly. I mean, I get it. Because there was a long time in my life where I couldn't even. Where the concept of the rapture was to me something very foreign. I remember the very first time I heard it mentioned. Heard it spoken of, this this strange, and I thought at the time, new teaching. It was 1972, 
20 years before the Left Behind book series came out, Mark IV Films produced a low-budget Christian movie entitled A Thief in the Night. Anybody see that back then? Okay, a few of you nuts did. (laughs) A Thief in the Night. And though it was low budget, it really stirred people. In fact, if you go to IMDb, IMDb, Internet Movie Database, IMDb Online, you can read about people's reactions and comments to it. Some people just cutting it down and saying, oh, it's just a bunch of tripe. And other people saying, no, it really changed my life. A thief in the night. I remember several of my friends went to the local evangelical free church and saw a free showing of the movie, Thief in the Night. The next day at school, it's all they could talk about. And overhearing and listening in, the whole thing sounded fantastical to me. I was a good Christian boy, raised in a church home. I'd never heard of such a thing. And I was saying, it's not possible, what are you talking about? And they were like, no, no, really, it's true, Jesus is going to rip us right out of here any minute. I mean, maybe now, maybe tonight. And I walked home from school, you know, looking around. I remember thinking, man, that is, that's, that's far out. See, that's 1970s slang for I can't even today. (laughs) Is the rapture of the church a far-out idea from the Christian fringe? Or is it legitimate biblical teaching? Legitical teaching, if you will. (laughs) We're just going to coin our own phrases this morning. Some say the teaching never even existed before the 1800s. They say early 1800s, a woman named Margaret MacDonald came along and she started talking about it. People picked up on it. John Nelson Darby in about 1880, oh, he jumped on it with the Brethren Movement and they started teaching the rapture. And that's where it started. And there's nothing about it prior to the 1800s. Whoever says that hasn't done their history. As early as 180 A.D., there's a man by the name of Irenaeus. I've mentioned Irenaeus before. He was a disciple... Irenaeus of a man named Polycarp. Polycarp was a disciple of a man named John, who was the disciple of Jesus Christ. John, the apostle of Jesus, discipled Polycarp, who discipled Irenaeus. And in 180 AD, Irenaeus wrote a, a, a work called Against Heresies. We have copies of it, extant copies of it today. Against Heresies. And in volume 5, verse 29, this is what Irenaeus had to say back in, again, 180 A.D. When in the end the church shall be suddenly caught up, it is said there shall be tribulation such as has not been since the beginning, neither shall be, he quotes Jesus. This is the last contest of the righteous in which when they overcome, they are crowned with incorruption. When the church is caught up, he said, raptured. Now, shortly after that, between about 246 and 252, there was a man named Cyprian, Bishop of Carthage, and he wrote his treatises during this time, and they contain the following, and I quote, Do you not give God thanks that by an early departure you are taken away and delivered from the shipwrecks and disasters that are imminent? Let us greet the day which assigns each of us to his own home, which snatches us hence and sets us free from the snares of the world and restores us to paradise and the kingdom. My friends, the rapture is not a new doctrine. It wasn't just spun out by some strange folks in the 1800s. It is as old as 245 or 180 or better yet, the word of God itself. The rapture is sound biblical 
teaching. Now, some would say, Rick, the word rapture is not even in the Bible. Good point. The word Bible's not in the Bible either. But the word rapture actually is. If we were reading Jerome's translation, the Latin Vulgate that was translated in 382 AD, we would see the word rapture very clearly in, in that passage of Scripture that we've read many times here. 1 Thessalonians 4.16 which reads, For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. We who are alive and remain will be caught up. You Bible students know it is the word raptus in the Latin. Harpazo in the Greek, caught up. I don't care what you call it, but the Bible says it's going to happen. And we'll be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. The rapture. The harpazo, the catching up, the being snatched away. And the scriptures teach this. Harpazo, it it means literally to take away by force, to catch up instantaneously, to seize powerfully. The word harpazo is used multiple times in the New Testament, and every time it's used is interesting to me. In fact, it's very informative and educational as to the whole concept of the rapture to go through and follow that word through. We'll do a little bit of that this morning. Going all the way back to the first century, so not just 180 with Irenaeus or 245 with Cyprian, go all the way back to the first century, and two more men were actually raptured themselves. John the Apostle experienced rapture, catching up, as we will see. And so did the writer of 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul. I'm looking forward to getting to this teaching. The 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 2, Paul says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a man was caught up to the third heaven, harpazo, raptured. And I know how such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, God knows. He was caught up into paradise. He heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. Jerome translates, caught up, rapture. Cyprian talked about it. Irenaeus talked about it. John talks about it. Paul writes of it. And I'm not just trying to heap on the history this morning but to establish that smarter men than I taught and believed the rapture of the church for centuries. But for millennia, the concept was a divine secret. It was a thing unknown. 1 Corinthians 15.51, Paul again says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. It's a mystery, or it was until Paul revealed it. See, that's what a mystery is. You don't go to the bookstore or online to Amazon and download a book. It's a mystery novel expecting never to find out who did it. You buy a mystery because you know ultimately it's going to be revealed, and that's the ah moment of of the novel. Well, our author and finisher of our faith, has done the same thing. He began with a mystery, and the mystery builds, and there's clues, and there there are hints, and and there's information that, that seeps out, that seems to establish something's going on here. A mystery, mysterion in the Greek, is something that is previously unknown, but intended to be revealed. I'm telling you a mystery now. It wasn't known before, but there was always the intention of revelation. The mysterion. 
Remember back in youth ministry we were teaching and, and we did this whole series on the Mousterion. And so we took the Greek lettering for Mousterion and put it on the back of t-shirts. It's really cool looking. People didn't know what it was because it was a mystery. See, that was the point. My friend looked at it and not knowing anything about Greek, he looked at it and tried to read it in English and he went, Miwatenplav? The Miwatenplav? What's the Miwatenplav? I'm like, it's a mystery. Why is Paul suddenly speaking this mystery? You know, something that perhaps you've understood if you've been here a while over the years and studying through the Bible is everything has context. There is not a single scripture that God just kind of pops in there for no reason. Sadly, a lot of times that's how we study the Bible. We pull one verse out and go, see, this is what I believe, and we don't take into consideration what it has to do with anything. Well, the rapture is not just one of those singular ideas that is plucked out of a single verse. It is totally in context. Paul is speaking of this mystery right now because here at the end of the letter, he has been talking about the resurrection. And the rapture is simply the expression of the resurrection, especially for those living, but for those living and dead. The rapture is the resurrection of the Christian. It's how it is expressed. The resurrection. Paul's trying to explain to the Corinthian church what happens when a Christian particularly dies. And how we are fitted out for eternity. And there was confusion in Corinth, and it comes very clear, and we've seen this as we've studied through the letter. Confusion in Corinth about what the resurrection or our future was all about. Gordon Fee writes, The Corinthians, of course, would have been plumping for an out-of-body immortality. But for Paul, the resurrection of Christ and his present bodily heavenly existence excluded their option. What does he mean? The Corinthians were thinking that their immortality was this spiritualized thing, that they were going to become more and more spiritual and eventually just kind of float away into ethereal experience. And you know what? That's exactly what the world believes today. Ask around. What's the answer to the question? How many people think of the afterlife as a solid bodily experience? You know what we see on TV and in the movies and in popular culture? The afterlife is a ghostly, ethereal, spectral thing. That if you die and if you still exist, people question even that, then you just kind of float around. You know, from cloud to cloud, or maybe you get stuck on earth. And you go floating, and that's all it is. Well, contrary to Walt Disney theology... Grim grinning ghosts do not come out to socialize. Look back in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 35, and listen to Paul very clearly explain exactly what resurrection looks like. He says, someone will say, how are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? You fool. That which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body just as He wished, and to each of the seeds a body of its own. And on a Wednesday night recently we talked about that. It's the same concept as a, as a grain of wheat. It drops into the ground. It is not what it will be, but the spark of life is in there. And it grows into that stalk of grain that is fruitful. Or an acorn that is not what it's going to be. It's just that little round hard nut. But put into the ground, it can become this amazing oak tree. I love how Isaiah 61 refers to oaks of righteousness. 
And so we're not what we will be. We are shells of what we will be. We are husks of what we will be. But another example given, not in Scripture, but in other places, is the caterpillar and the butterfly. We will, like the caterpillar, sloughing along on the ground, ultimately we will sprout wings, as it were. We will change. There will be a metamorphosis that takes place. And that's what Paul is getting at here. This old out-of-body myth is not resurrection. I've told you before, look at Jesus in His resurrection. What was He like? Flesh and blood. Glorified flesh and blood. Able to do things that no human being could do in our current physical state. But solid nonetheless. He eats fish in front of Him to show them, look, I'm not a ghost. Touch me, He says. And we get this wonderful realization that resurrection is not what I thought as a kid would scare me to death. I was going to become some floaty thing. I didn't want, who wants that? I just kind of want to stay like I am, you know? Not, look down at verse 42. Paul says, so also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. It's sown in dishonor, it's raised in glory. Sown in weakness, raised in power. Sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there's also, he says, a spiritual body. So he's establishing this understanding. He's saying, look, Corinthians, the resurrection from the dead is a resurrection to actual life, better life. More powerful life. More spiritual life. Spiritual, by the way, doesn't mean ethereal. I said before that spiritual is more real than physical. Because the physical is temporary. These are shells that we are in. Spiritual is the real thing. But now that Paul has established that the resurrection of the dead is, is what it is, explains it, The next question would naturally arise, and he answers it before they can even ask it. What about the living? Okay, I can understand, perhaps, this whole idea of the resurrection from the dead. But in the moment that this all is supposed to take place, what about those who are alive? What happens to them when this all goes down or up? What happens? And Paul says, we will not all Sleep. That's the mystery. That's the thing that was not understood before. That now is being revealed. The mystery, we will not all sleep. In fact, some people, an entire generation, will never taste death. Well, that's not fair. What they do to deserve that? Nothing. Exactly as you did nothing to deserve, I did nothing to deserve grace and salvation and mercy and the love of God in the first place. They just happened to be there at the time. Right place at the right time, I would say. But an entire generation who will, in an instant, be caught up and will never die. It's a mystery. But this mystery is not without suggestion or without precedent in history and in the Bible. And if we go back and think this through, the Hebrew Bible is full of clues and and allusions. What I would like to call this morning Hebrew hints. Let me give you a few Hebrew hints to see that this was not something that just popped up in Paul's mind or later in Irenaeus or then later in the 1800s with Darby. 
No, this is something that's been on the plate for a long, long time. We can go all the way back to the seventh generation after Adam. And we meet a man named Enoch. Enoch, Genesis chapter 5, verse 24. Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. And that's it. First example, tangible, actual example we have of someone going home with God without dying. Enoch did not die. He was just, I imagine it this way. The evening was cool and pleasant. God and Enoch are walking along, so the company was congenial. The conversation was uplifting, and it just got more and more uplifting. (laughs) And I don't know exactly how it took place, but I'll tell you what, when I think about Enoch walking with God, I think, oh, to walk with God like that. I would love to just go walking with God in such a fashion. That at the end of the day, God goes, you know, we're kind of a ways out from your house. Why don't you just come on home with me? And Enoch's like, dude. (laughs) And up he went. Hebrews 11.5 explains a little more. says, by faith Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death. And he was not found because God took him up. For he obtained the witness that before being taken up, he was pleasing to God. God just said, I like you, Enoch. I enjoy you. Come home with me. So in Enoch, we have the first example of of the rapture, of a man raptured. It has already happened twice, actually. More than that, if you include John and Paul, we'll get to the two of them. But what about Elijah? Oh, that story of Elijah? It's a a little more dramatic than Enoch's story. In fact, if I'm going to be raptured, I really want my own fiery chariot. (laughs) We're told in 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 11, they were going along and talking, and behold, there appeared an uber chariot of fire. <laughs> a chariot of fire and horses of fire which separated the two of them, that is, Elijah and Elisha, his protege. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind to heaven. He did not die. In the same way that Enoch did not die. Oh, I know someone may be thinking, Chariots of fire. Okay, I saw the movie and there weren't any. <laughs> Chariots, come on. Horses of fire. I mean, that, that's, just, that's fanciful. That's Christian fiction. That couldn't possibly have happened. And you know when that was first uh, mocked? When it happened. All the way back when Elijah was caught up in the fiery chariot, apparently Elisha, who saw this, told somebody about it because word got out and Elisha was mocked for believing in the rapture of Elijah. How's that so? Well, 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 23 says, Elisha went up from there to Bethel, and as he was going up by the way, young lads came out from the city and mocked him, and they said to him, Go up, you bald head, go up, you bald head. Apparently, Elisha was follically challenged, (laughs) lacking the requisite cranial cover. And so these teenagers, that's what they said. Go get yourself raptured, cue ball. Go on up. You go up too, just like Elijah, chrome dome. Listen, don't ever mess with a bald prophet. (laughs) Furthermore, don't go messing with a bald pastor or balding pastor either. 
Because 2 Kings 2.24 tells us the outcome of such mockery. When he looked behind him, Elisha that is, and saw them, these young lads, he cursed them in the name of the Lord, and two female bears came out of the woods and tore up 42 lads of their number. Oh, yeah. I love it. Another beautiful description of this. We see Enoch caught up. We see Elijah caught up. Both of them not having died. But there's another picture here. In the Song of Songs, a beautiful poetic example of the calling out of the calling home. Because we hear a bridegroom saying the following to his bride. Uh, Song of Songs, chapter 2. In fact, turn there for a moment, would you? Song of Songs, chapter 2. It's right about in the middle. Yeah, roughly in the middle of your Bible. The Song of Solomon, this beautiful poetry of Solomon which teaches great, profound biblical truths. And in this we hear the groom speaking to the bride. Verse 10 of Song of Solomon, chapter 2. The groom says, Arise, my darling, my beautiful one, and come along. For behold, the winter is past. The rain is over and gone. The flowers have already appeared in the land. The time has arrived for pruning the vines. And the the voice of the turtle dove has been heard in our land. The fig tree has ripened its figs. Bible students, just make a mental note of that. The fig tree has ripened its figs. And the vines in blossom have given forth their fragrance. Arise, my darling, my beautiful one. And he says, come along. Come along, says the groom to the bride. Come along. Oh, I read that and my mind goes exactly to where I think it should. Come along. Come along where, the bride might ask. Come along, the groom would say, to a place prepared. To a place that I have been getting ready for you. John 14.3, Jesus says, If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to Myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Jesus promised to receive to Himself, to take unto Himself a people to a place that He's preparing, and not here. That we would be taken up. And this is what the young Jewish groom would do prior to fetching his bride. He would prepare a place for her. Build on, usually to his father's house, a room that would be prepared, that would become their wedding room, their wedding home. And then once it was prepared, the groom would let the father know, and the father would say, go get your bride, and the groom would go out and say, come along, my darling one. Or as Jesus said to John, come up here. Come up here. It ties in with a very another very Hebrew book. That is the book of Revelation. Oh, Rick, the book of Revelation, that's in the New Testament, right? So how is it Hebrew? It's probably the most Hebrew book of the entire New Testament. It references the Hebrew Scriptures 500 times. So if you're going to study the book of Revelation, prepare yourself to study the entire Hebrew Bible because it's, much of it is right there. And in Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, John is describing what's going on, and he says, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard, like the sound of a trumpet. And he was speaking to me, and he said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. And there are many who think, and I am one of them, 
that when he says, come up here, and John is caught up to heaven, that it is a picture of the church. That John's catching up is representative, if you will, of ours. And that when the voice is heard, like the sound of a trumpet, the words that we will hear are, come up here, and off we go. And Revelation 19 verse 7 explains why we're caught up in the first place. It says, let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to Him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. Ready for what, Lord? Ready for the marriage supper of the bride. Ready for the celebration that the groom calls the bride out to enjoy. Hebrew hints. So we even see it there in the Song of Songs. One more before we move forward on this. One more Hebrew hint. Isaiah 26, verse 20. Which says, Come, my people, enter into your rooms and close your doors behind you. Hide for a little while until indignation runs its course. Come hide away. What is Isaiah talking about? What does this have to do with Israel? Well, Isaiah is the Messianic prophet. Talks about Jesus more than just about any other prophet. Proclaims His coming. Proclaims what He's going to do. And in this verse we hear the voice of the Lord say, Come away, my people. Hide yourself until indignation runs its course. Studying through the Hebrew Scriptures, we understand that indignation is tribulation. That the indignation speaks of what the Bible calls the day of Jacob's trouble. Out of Jeremiah chapter 30, Jacob's trouble, the tribulation, the great tribulation, the time of God pouring out wrath on the world. And even in Hebrew theology, it was understood that day was coming. And it would be a difficult day, a dark day. Joel talks about it, the day of the Lord, Joel chapter 2. A time of indignation, of God pouring out wrath. And people hear that and they go, see, see, that's, that's you Christians. I don't like that. I don't like the idea of a wrathful God. I like, I like the Jesus love stuff. That's cool. But I don't like wrath of God stuff. I mean, indignation sounds like someone's angry. Yeah. Anna Marie used to tell me when she first came home, about the first year or so that, that she came home, uh, Hayden at the time, Anna Marie was 11, Hayden was around 12, and uh, being 12 and 13... There was occasional parental indignation on my part. And whenever I would get a little angry or I would raise my voice and Anna Marie was not used to hearing that, she would enter into her room, close her door behind her, and hide for a little while until indignation ran its course. <laughs> she literally told me that. I just used to leave the room. When you got mad at Hayden, I <laughs> closed my door and I just waited until you were done. That's the idea. That God is going to be angry. God is angry? The angry God? Absolutely. You better believe He's angry. And angry right now. Why? Angry at violence, aren't you? Angry at bloodshed? Angry at injustice and hatred and cruelty and brutality and bullying? All those things that you see going on in the world that upset you, How much more would they upset the Creator of this world? God is angry at these things. Angry when someone that's innocent gets hurt. Angry when things happen. And God's indignation is coming, folks. Would we want it otherwise? I mean, isn't that fair? 
But what do two children say when both get busted, but the one is the only one who did anything? The one who didn't do anything says, that's not fair! Or if someone doesn't get busted, and they should, that's not fair, how come they're not in trouble? They were involved? That's not fair. Where do we get this idea of fairness and justice? We get it from God, who is absolutely just and fair. Let me ask you, in all fairness, shouldn't there be a just punishment of evil in this world? Absolutely. Thank you. And so, Arkan Satine, the young man who killed five people in cold blood, just a couple weeks back now. Would it be fair if he was walking free in the streets of Oak Harbor? Doesn't he deserve some punishment for taking the lives of five people who are at makeup counters in Macy's? If you struggle with understanding the wrath of God, understand God is a father who is angry when his children and his creation are messed with. And so am I. And as a dad, I get angry when my kids get messed with. And so the indignation is coming. But to his children, to those who follow him, he says, no wait, come hide away because this is not for you. Hide away in your rooms where I can protect you until the indignation is over. Why? 1 Thessalonians 5.9 For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with Him. Which is why I believe in a pre-tribulation, pre-indignation, if you will, rapture. Maybe that's a good way to put it from here on out. I believe in the pre-indignation rapture. That God is not going to drive His people directly into wrath. I don't know why people would want to ride the Titanic down. Some do. Oh yeah, it'll be awesome. Put me on the trib force, man. <laughs> that would be great. You're an idiot. <laughs> The Old Testament tells us the Hebrew Scriptures from the closing the doors and hiding away to the wedding call of the bridegroom to the fiery chariot of Elijah to the taking a walk with God of of Enoch. It is filled with Hebrew hints of a wonderful homecoming. That's just the Hebrew Scriptures. And we are just warming up. And I know the Seahawks aren't playing. Enter Jesus. Jesus hinted all over the place at the rapture of the church as well. So, Hebrew hints. Number two, Christological clues. Christological clues. In John chapter 8, verse 51, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. What a great promise. Of course, you might hear that and go, Okay, really? And that's exactly what the Jews said. They said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, and the prophets also. And you say, If anyone keeps my word, you will never taste of death. Come on! I added the come on. But that, that's the tenor. That's the feeling. That's the sense that they had. And understand this, that the promise of Jesus, it first relates to spiritual death. That is, if anyone keeps the word of God, they will not taste Spiritual death. He'd already explained that. John 5.24, Truly, truly, I say to you, He who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death and into life. And so Abraham and the prophets and all of them, those who died before, hey, they passed 
Through death into life. Out of death and into life. So Jesus is saying it works both ways. If you keep my word, you'll never see death. Not spiritual death. You will come into eternity. Death. Anybody like death? It is the invasive interrupter. It comes crashing into our lives. And it rattles everything. It stops us in our tracks. Everything stops. Death comes rushing in. It's never expected. It's never planned for. Rarely planned for. It just happens and it stops everything. And our lives are shaken up. Our, our currently ignorantly blissful lives. Oh, we're just going along. Everything's great. We're just going to live forever. And then it hits. And Jesus says, I don't want that for you. If you will keep my word, you will pass out of death and into life. That's the promise. And it is a beautiful, comforting, strengthening promise. It's not just the stuff of funerals. Oh, we've lost this person, so let's, let's just pretend that they're in a better place. We know what the place is like. The Bible describes the place. Talks all about the joy and the peace and the comfort And the encouragement of being in the presence of Jesus to the point that Paul himself said, I don't even know which one's better. To live as Christ, but to die. That's gain. Death interrupts. And far worse, far worse than physical mortality is spiritual mortality. Spiritual death because it's eternal. That's the death that Jesus is most concerned about. Don't die in your sin. Don't die in rebellion. Don't die the spiritual death. Oh, many people throughout history will have died physical death. And yet, dying in faith, you go home to be with Jesus. Don't die the spiritual death. Jesus is saying those who keep His Word, that is, who who trust Him, will come alive spiritually, eternally. And yes, listen, yes, in the case of that certain generation... Some will not see physical death at all. Wait, Rick, really? I mean, you're saying some people will never die? We will not all sleep. That's the mystery. That's the promise. And Jesus is sufficient to it. He's the one who said, I am the resurrection and the life. John eleven twenty five. And he says two things. And I pointed this out before. Don't miss this. He says, he who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. And then he adds this little caveat. Do you believe this? He's talking about those who are alive at the time of the rapture. If you are alive in the moment that God calls His church home, you will never die. You will never taste of death. Never experience it. That's what I'm holding out for. I'm 52. i got a few more good years in me. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Because I think we may be in that generation. And speaking of Christological clues, here's a good one for you. Matthew 12, 29, Jesus says, How can anyone enter into the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house? What's that mean? The strong man is Satan. The house is the world. And the carrying off just so happens to be the same word for rapture, harpazo. Jesus says, 
how can anyone enter Satan's house and harpazo, rapture his property, unless he first buys the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. Tying up Satan. Satan's already tied up. He doesn't know when this is going to happen. And he has no power to stop it. And everything, by the way, that has needed to happen prophetically, historically, according to the Bible, everything that has to happen before the rapture of the church can take place has happened. There's nothing left on God's prophetic calendar. And so we are in this place that I believe is overtime. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew 24. Matthew 24. I just love this. Matthew 24, and we're going to pick it up in verse 32. I'm going to throw a couple things out to you really quickly, but we'll get to the point of this. Again, we're in Christological clues. The Hebrew Scriptures talk about the rapture, hint at the rapture of the church and give us example of it. Jesus comes along and He begins to spread those hints as well that some will never die. And He says in Matthew 24, 32, Now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So you too, when you see all these things, recognize that He is near right at the door. What did we just read in Song of Solomon? The fig is ripe. The fig tree is producing. Come away, my beloved. Something to do with this fig tree. And you Bible students know throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, the fig tree is the picture of Israel. Which suddenly, surprisingly, shockingly became a nation again May 14th of 1948. No one saw that one coming. Following the horrible Holocaust. And yet this nation was born. Isaiah prophesied it would be in Isaiah 66, I believe 65, 66. Born in a day. Can a nation be born in a day? And it was. The fig tree put forth its leaves. The fig tree began to blossom. And Jesus says, learn the parable of the fig tree when its branches become tender and it pulls forth its leaves. You know, summer is near. And so too, he says, verse 34, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. The generation alive at the blossoming, the budding of the fig tree will not pass away until all this happens. The Bible counts a generation at about anywhere from 40 to 100 years. 1948, 1988, people got real excited. 2048 is 100 years of this generation from the budding of the fig tree Israel. Rick, did you just put a time stamp on this? I mean, we're, what, 2048, is that when we're going? No, I hope it's a lot sooner than that. And I'm not putting a time stamp on it, because the very next verse, Jesus says, of that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. No one knows when this is going to happen. My friends were right. Rick, he could rip us out of here tonight. I'm like, far out. <laughs> It can happen any time. There's nothing to prevent it, nothing to stop it. And within the generation, if we're reading this correctly, and I believe we are, the generation of the fig tree. By the way, side note, I didn't share this first hour. Luke gives Jesus teaching on the Mount of Olives and adds something that Matthew doesn't mention. That Matthew says when you see the fig tree, Luke adds this phrase, and all the trees... When you see the fig tree blossom and putting forth its leaves and all the trees, you know summer's near. 
Well, what's that? I encourage you to pick up a copy, and we can get one for you, of Ray Rimp's book, A Season for All Times. Because in it, he points out something that's absolutely marvelous. I had never heard this before, but when you read Luke, the fig tree and all the trees, do you realize between 1948 and 1988, just in those 40 years, massive numbers of nations sprung up? More than has happened in history, all at once? And he goes through and details that. Remember, the the Soviet Union broke up. And in the breakup of the Soviet Union, suddenly all these nation states were popping up all over the place, the fig tree and all the trees. More support that perhaps we are in the generation that may not die. A group of people who will be caught up. Go on. But Jesus says then, Verse 37, for the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. As in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then there will be two men in one field. One will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. And I am convinced Jesus is talking about the rapture. But some disagree. Some say, no, no, no. He's talking about people being taken away into judgment because as he just said in verse 39, the flood came and took them all away. So clearly they were taken away to judgment. So clearly if you continue with that, you would understand that two men in the field, one will be taken off and judged and the other one will be left. Oh, I guess I I got by. And there's a, a complete theology around that that says this is not about the rapture, it is about judgment. Let me make it very clear for you. The word taken away, there in verse 39, the flood came and took them all away, is a hero. And a hero in the Greek means literally to cause to cease. To cut off, to kill, really. To cause to cease by judgment. So yes, the flood came and it took them away, it caused them to cease. And all those who rejected the prophecies of Noah and the teaching of Noah, all of those on earth at the time, when the flood came, were taken away. But, he goes on and says, there will be two men in the field. One will be taken and the other one will be left. And the word taken there is not the same word. It's one of my favorite, next to harpazo, probably my favorite word in the Bible. And it is paralambano. Paralambano, which means to take with or to receive unto. Let me give you some context for the use of that word. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 20, the angel appeared to Joseph in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to paralambano, take Mary as your wife. Paralambano, to take with like a groom taking his bride. Uh, furthermore, More compellingly, Jesus used the exact same word when he said, John 14, 3, If I go prepare a place for you, I will come again and paralambano you to myself. I will receive you to myself, that where I am, there you will be also. Do you think Jesus knew what he was saying? When he said, I will receive you to myself in that place, and right here there will be two men in the field, one will be received unto, and the other will be left. He is talking about the rapture of the church. He's talking about that moment when some will be caught up in an instant. We haven't even gotten back to 1 Corinthians 15. (laughs) 
And to the one who says, you know, the whole thing sounds to me like Christian escapism, I would say absolutely it is. Of course it is. You don't want to escape when you have the chance? No, I'd really rather stay here and see the Titanic down. Seriously, Jesus said, keep on the alert at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. The escape brings you to stand before Jesus. It is again the rapture of the church. Who wouldn't want that? That divine escape. And so Christological clues and Hebrew hints, and yet still there are those who just can't even. You talk about the rapture of the church. Can't go there. I can't even. Why not? Quickly, back to 1 Corinthians 15. And the nice thing is there's only two verses left. So stay with me. 1 Corinthians 15, 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. And that's, I think, part of the problem. I don't want to change. I kind of like, you know, being here. At least I'm I'm comfortable in my skin. Maybe it's not the best skin on earth, but I'm comfortable in it. I'm used to it. It's like an old sweatshirt. I like the way it feels, and this is it's good. Let's just leave well enough alone. Oh no, you must change. The perishable must put on the imperishable. You have to change. But I don't want to change. I don't like change. Seriously, ask my wife. I don't like change. How are you with change? The iPhone 7's out. I just got the iPhone 6. I'm always behind the curve. Here comes the new one. And they're always coming out with something new. And of course, iOS 10 has just come out, the new operating system, because they have to pair a new operating system with the new phone. I just got used to iOS 9.975XYZ. And now there's a new operating system, and there's a new learning curve, and i got to get used to the new thing. And... Who's tired of all the change that is so constant in our culture? You can raise your hand if you really are, because I am. Okay, those of you who aren't, you're millennials, I get it. You you old people, you just don't know how to keep up. It's easy, just, you know, upload the thing and do the thing and push the button and you're all fine. I'm like going, Millennials, your hair's going to fall out too, man. You're going to get to a point in life where you're like, I am sick and tired of the change. Actually, I hope you don't. I really do. I hope you never get to that point. I hope Jesus comes first. But change, even, even for a millennial, even for a young person, change is uncomfortable. Change is difficult. 1 Thessalonians 4.18 tells us that this is supposed to be comforting teaching. Paul says, comfort one another with these words. And yet, for many, the idea of the rapture is disconcerting. It makes me uncomfortable, fearful. It ought not be that way. Why is it so upsetting to some? Because it's not understood. Because we don't think about it in context. What is this about? Again, like my friends coming back from seeing Thief in the Night. Without any context, without any explanation, without any reason, it freaked me out. It scared me. Until you start to think it through. And see what the Scriptures truly have to say about it. We hear things like, we're going to go to heaven and we're going to worship for all eternity. And and some think, man, I I barely make it through four and a half songs. On a Sunday morning and they're starting up a fifth song. Oh, man. 
We hear about angels and harps and halos and wings and crowns and pearly gates and we go, huh? I don't know. Conventional wisdom rejects all this stuff as strange and distant and fanciful. God is doing a good thing here. And this change is a good thing. And as much as we may be resistant to it, understand that. When he learned Jesus was about to leave, Thomas, he spoke up and said, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? And I'm convinced he spoke those words with a degree of anxiety. What, what, what do you mean you're leaving us now? We've been hanging for three, three and a half years. It's all so good. Can't we just keep walking around the Galilee and teaching and stuff? I like this. Why do you have to go? We don't know the way, Lord. He says, Thomas, I am the way and the truth and the life. What's he saying? He's saying, look, it's just about me. You've enjoyed being with me here. You're going to enjoy being with me there. We have a good relationship here. It's going to be better there. I know you're uncomfortable with this idea of change. The Lord might tell us this morning, but it will be good. It's all good. You don't need to worry. In fact, after all of these Hebrew hints and Christological clues, we come down to the final point, a twinkling transformation. He says, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, in a moment. And we talked about this Wednesday. I've got to repeat myself on this. The word moment is atomos, where we get our word atom. And the reason why it's moment, because in the Greek, atomos is an indivisible flash. It is a moment, it's a, a time signature that is so quick, it's, it's, you can't divide it anymore. We already have figured out how to divide the particle of the atom, right? We can't figure out how to divide this. This is a moment that goes by so fast, you can't divide it. Uh, Mark told me, and I'm going to get this wrong, I think it's Planck theory, or, or Planck... Uh, it's not theory because it's been proven, but Max Planck actually came along, a scientist, and proved the, the indivisible uh, time span. And it's like 1 in 10 to the negative 53, I think. Something weird like that. You scientists might go, oh yeah. I, I sit there and go, okay. Uh, how about a moment? <laughs> An atom. It's so fast. Woos defines a moment as an instant of time so small that it cannot be divided into smaller units. Now think about that. If that freaks you out, it shouldn't. It's a good thing. In a moment, there's no time to pack. My mother-in-law spends about two and a half weeks packing for a three-day trip. I've got to get the things and make sure I've got all the plugs for all of my devices. And, and what if I forget this stuff? And, and, you know, the anxiety of trying to prepare, trying to be ready, the fret, the worry. You don't have to worry about it. Let me tell you, the rapture of the church, you don't have to think about it in terms of being ready. Just love Jesus. You don't fret. And like Lot's wife, you don't find yourself looking back. It will be too quick. You see, in the case of Lot and his family getting out of Sodom and Gomorrah, they had to walk out. And as they're walking up the hillside, she kind of goes, longingly looks back, and instantly she's gone. Pillar of salt. It won't be like that. It'll be so quick. I mean, we were talking Wednesday night, kind of laughing about this. Someone's going to sneeze, open their eyes, and be standing there looking at Jesus. <laughs> and he'll say, bless you. <laughs> A moment just comes, it goes, and we're there. 
in, in the twinkling of an eye, hripe is the word in, in the Greek. Hripe, which means a twinkle. It's literally been measured one one trillionth of a second. So fast. Here's the point. Here's why this is comforting. Two quick things. Number one, the transformation will be instantaneous. And number two, the transformation will be incorruptible. Instantaneous. The rapture of the church is not a long, drawn-out process like one of Rick's sermons. It goes by like that. And you're there. It's not flight training that we have to go through. Several months of working. or Actually, our life is training and preparation. But in that moment, in that twinkling of an eye, it is a straight shot, straight up. And you're there instantaneously. No second guessing because there's not a second to spare. In the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. By the way, why a trumpet? Because the trumpet, the shofar, was used, the ram's horn was used to gather the people. This is the last trumpet. The first trumpet, Exodus 19, verse 13, tells us when the ram's horn sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain, and it shall come about on the third day. Exodus 19, 16, when it was morning, there was thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. They heard the blast of the shofar. They went up to the mountain. The people were gathered. The trumpet, the last trumpet, is going to blow, and likewise the people will be gathered. Because the shofar will sound. Some of you are just dying for me to say it, so I will. Shofar, show good. (laughs) And the last trumpet, like the first trumpet, will gather the people of God. And we will be changed. We will be raised imperishable. Imperishable. Incorruptible. So it's instantaneous, and we are instantaneously incorruptible. Invincible. To be invincible in the body? Man, anyone who would rather stay in this physical body, you got problems, dude, because I'm going invincible on you. And will be for all eternity. Never to die. Never to, to face pain. Never to be weary. Never to be hungry. Never to be dying of thirst. But simply invincible in the new resurrected body. Verse 53 tells us, For the perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. You can have the best supercomputer in all the world, and eventually the files will get corrupted. We have supercomputers, our brains. God has already created an amazing supercomputer, but the files corrupt, don't they? I shared, I think it was on a Wednesday night, shared that I had a promise with the Lord that when we started the bridge 13 years ago, I was going to teach through the Bible until He came or until we finished. And I was going to take notes. And I was going to make sure my notes were full. And I was going to know what I was talking about because His Word was available and and take all kinds of notes. And then I was going to teach from those notes so we don't miss a thing. Trust me, we've missed a lot. But to try and be as, as informational as possible and teach as closely to God's Word as I could... But then at the end, if we finish Revelation, which I plan to long about February, we finish Revel- finish that book, then what? Well, then we'll go back to the beginning. And I said, and Lord, then I'll put away my notes. 
I'll just teach out of your word. We'll just come in and we'll open up Genesis and go as long as we can for an hour and I'll just, and I'll just teach because that supercomputer is going to be so revved up and so filled up with the information and the knowledge. And here I am, 52, and I can't remember a thing. <laughs> now, the brain's corrupting. I'm going to need notes more then than I do now. And that's what happens. We need the incorruptible. You, you could eat right. You, you, People involved with dietary fats, I've been there, I know, I'm back to Pop-Tarts and loving it. (laughs) Kidding. Seize candy, yeah. But you can have the best dietary instruction and rules in your life. You can be involved in the gym constantly and have all kinds of bodily discipline. And Paul says bodily discipline is only of a little profit. But godliness is profitable for all things. It holds the promise for the present life and also the life to come. And so this twinkling transformation immediately makes the corruptible incorruptible. And it happens in an instant in the twinkling of an eye. The Bible tells us in Colossians 3.4, When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, you also will be revealed with Him in glory. What does that mean? It means you're going to go be with Him in the rapture and you're going to come back with Him in the second coming. And that's another teaching for another time. 1 John 3, 2, We know when He appears we will be like Him because we will see Him just as He is. And you know what we'll see? We'll see Jesus as He is. We'll see how we are and say, Ah, we're like Him. In our resurrected, eternal bodies. I'll tell you what's most comforting to me about this teaching. It's that I can't even. I can't. I can't get myself there. I can't even make myself good for a few days. I can't be righteous enough. I can't lift myself up. I can't find the way to heaven. I can't even. And that's the point. He has. He can. He does. He's the one who's going to do it. What's my part in it? Trust Him. Believe in Him. Love Him. Jude 24 says He is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of His glory, blameless with great joy. I want to read you something and we'll finish. This I actually picked up years ago from George Carlin, so I had to change it, clean it up a little bit. (laughs) But he wrote this, and and I always love the sound of this. Check it out. He says, The most unfair thing about life is the way it ends. I mean, life is tough. It takes up a lot of our time. What do you get at the end of it? Death? What's that, a bonus? He says, I think the life cycle is all backwards. You should die first, get it out of the way. Then, you go live in an old age home and they feed you pudding. You get kicked out when you're too young. You get a gold watch and you go to work. You work 40 years until you're young enough to enjoy your retirement. You relax, you party, you get ready for high school. You go to grade school, you become a kid, you play, you have no responsibilities, you become a little baby, you go back into the womb, and you spend your last nine months floating, and you finish off as a twinkle in your father's eye. (laughs) Thing is, that's kind of stupid. You don't have to end up twisting around the whole order of life because the truth is we do end up as a twinkle in our father's eye in the twinkling of an eye and I thought about it for the first time this week perhaps the twinkling of the eye is the twinkle in God's eye 
a twinkle that has been around since the creation of the world. That at the very beginning, with a twinkle in his eye, he had a plan in mind. A mystery at first, now revealed. That even if you die, you will be caught up to Jesus if you trust Him. And if you are alive at that time, you will be caught up and you will never taste death. How do you be part of that? Give your life to Jesus today. Just trust Jesus. Follow Him. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And He will ultimately bring us home. Father, praise Your name. This whole concept of the rapture of the church being caught up. I admit, even with all my understanding at this point, Father, it's a little thrilling. There's something in it that makes me go, oh, wow, that this is a biblical reality, that this is going to happen. Now, Father, I pray, first of all, that this would be comforting teaching for all who believe. There would be comfort in this, in this promise something we can't even do anything about, but you've got it. You're going to take care of it. And when the moment is right, and you alone know, Father, you will take us home. And I pray comfort for your people. But I pray conviction, Father, as well. That we know, that we don't know, when this is going to take place. And we know right now there are those who are striving and fretting and trying to pack for some journey they don't understand. I pray, Father, that they will drop their bags and that we as your people will be used as a voice of comfort and truth talking about the love of Jesus. And Father, if there's anyone here this morning who has not received Jesus as Lord and Savior, anyone who this teaching causes to be fearful, Lord Jesus, bring the comfort of truth, your Spirit, and draw their hearts to you today. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.